may be seated. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum, good luck with that. Um, 783, if you're using the Pew Bible. Of course, if you're using your electronic version, it's a lot simpler to get there quickly. Nahum is that little book that often gets neglected. It's a match with the book of Jonah. In fact, it's the exciting conclusion to what God's doing in the nation of Israel as it relates to Assyria. Uh, Nineveh is that capital city, and if you remember in the, over the um, change of the new year, we walked through Jonah 1, 2, 3, and 4 and saw that God used a reluctant preacher to cause a reformation and a revival in this nation of Assyria so that God spared them the judgment that they deserved for their sin. Nahum is some hundred years later, and about 760 B.C., Jonah ministered, and he declared this um, message of salvation, and the people repented in Nineveh. After about a hundred years of withholding judgment, though, God was ready to bring judgment for their wickedness. They had, in a sense, repented of their repentance and had turned back to their wicked ways. And in fact, God was going to speak through the prophet Isaiah that He would use Assyria to bring judgment on His people, particularly the northern tribes of Israel who had slipped into rebellion, wickedness, apostasy. And as Pastor Tony preached through the book of Isaiah, we saw that Assyria was God's instrument to bring that judgment on the northern kingdom. That northern kingdom and its capital city, Samaria, was taken into captivity in 721 B.C., and then, not long after, King uh, Sennacherib of Assyria was threatening to take the southern kingdom. And by 701, he's right at the gates of Jerusalem, laying siege to the city, ready to invade it. But God miraculously intervenes, and He stops the siege by sending the angel of the Lord to kill 185,000 Assyrians. That struck a blow to the Assyrians, and Nahum comes along prophesying around 663 to 654 B.C. It was really during the worst time of wickedness in the southern kingdom. A wicked king, Manasseh, was running away from God and running to idolatry. And in this book, Nahum predicts the downfall of Assyria while their king in Israel, the south, southern kingdom, is being led by a wicked king. But in Second Chronicles 33, there is this amazing work of God's grace that He does in Manasseh's heart. Manasseh is actually taken captive by Assyrians, tortured, and he cries out to the Lord. He's a changed man, and he comes back and he brings revival and change to the southern kingdom. And so, the prophecy that Nahum brings is a warning to Assyria that God will destroy them for their wickedness. And within 40 years, by 612, at the hands of the next world power, the Babylonians, God fulfills the prophecy that Nahum speaks, that Nahum brings us today. And his prophecy is a warning to Judah, don't follow the, the path of Assyria in turning back from their repentance. And it's a warning to us that God is just and righteous, and He will surely judge. Follow along as I read Nahum chapter 1. 
an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken in pieces by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your fasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray together. O God, as we come to this passage of Scripture and we see your character on display we are really challenged to think in ways that are true to Your Word. We are so often tempted to think in ways that we would rather think, and I pray that our feelings would be subject to the truth of Your Word. Pray that Your Spirit would be active among us and work in our hearts so that we would grow in our understanding of You and then be led to live different lives because of what we know. We pray that you do this for your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a tough book of the Bible and a tough chapter. I think there's so much packed in that second verse about God's jealous, avenging, wrathful work. And that is scary to a lot of people. And it's hard to understand at times. Oprah Winfrey you might know who she is. She recounted a few years back now on her TV program that the reason that she had turned away from the Christian upbringing that she had, uh, she had mentioned when she was about 27 or 28 years old, she was in a church and there was a a preacher that was preaching and, and she was tracking with what he was saying and she was excited and she's like, yes, God is omnipresent. Yes, God is everything. Yes, God is love, etc. Until he got to a phrase that struck her. She was aghast when the preacher said that God is a jealous God. She said, quote, something didn't feel right 
about that in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that when, uh, and, and that's when the search for something more than doctrine began to stir within me. Her views about God were about how He's love, about how He's everywhere, how He fills all things, but she didn't want to be challenged with any different view of God than what she had. Now, I don't think she's alone in America as somebody who is religious or spiritual who has their own view of God. I think there are people filling churches across America that are simply devoted to a God of their own making, not the God of the Bible. Our task as followers of Christ and followers of His Word is to rightly understand what His Word teaches and believe it no matter how we feel. Now, I appreciate some of the teachers and preachers I heard speaking about Oprah's misunderstanding of jealousy, the jealousy of God, and explaining what does the Bible actually teach on the jealousy of God. And I think we should do that, and we're going to do that a little bit today. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? But we have to set our expectations carefully because just because you could get an hour alone with Oprah to explain what the Bible really says about what a jealous God really is doesn't mean that she's going to change her mind. doesn't mean that she's going to say, oh, of course, now that makes sense, because these truths about God are spiritually discerned. Remember how Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So without the mind of Christ, somebody's going to hear the same truth that you hear, and they're not going to embrace it. They're not going to agree with it. Later in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says that God through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It all depends on your vantage point, how you view these, the, the, the true God as described in the Bible. In Exodus 14, see if this image will help you understand the distinction. When the Shekinah glory was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and the armies of Egypt were following close behind, we read that the angel of God went before the camp of Israel and moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. So when it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other." It's the same Shekinah there before both groups. To one it was darkness, to the other it's light. Just a caution not to, not to get so wrapped up in being able to explain so carefully that you believe that that's automatically going to persuade somebody of who the God of the Bible is. We need to understand that know the truth, but the results will be in the Lord's hands. Let's look at what God says about Himself, that the Lord is good and angry. This oracle to Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Nahum's name means comfort, and we're going to see how 
these hard words can be words of comfort to us. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. I don't think there is one verse in all of Scripture that is so steeped in this character of God being His anger, His wrath, His vengeance. And this word that, in this characteristic that Oprah had such a problem with, that God is a jealous God. In some cases, jealousy is wrong amongst human beings. And we, we can't let our human emotions and characteristics be what we put onto God and say, well, that be, must be what God is like. No, God is who He is, and He's not, he's not shaped by the way that we view one another. And in some cases, jealousy is petty. Sometimes it's just driven by human pride and selfishness and a desire to dominate, and, and jealousy can be ugly in that respect. But with God, you can think of it a different way. You can think of it as a zeal, as a passion for exclusive devotion. It's the analogy of a husband or a wife with each other. They will tolerate no rivals. There can be no unfaithfulness because this covenant is made in marriage that, belong, that each belongs to the other, and there should be no one else. In Exodus 34, there is a covenant renewal ceremony that uh, the people of God are taking uh, part in, and all the dangers of being called back to the gods that are around them. They're going to go into this promised land, and there's going to be a lot of different religions, a lot of false gods, and they're going to be tempted to be unfaithful to their covenant God. And the Lord warns them, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. Get rid of the idols. You can't have them, and me as well. He says, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He's not just jealous, but His name is Jealous. He doesn't want to share you with another. He wants your exclusive love and devotion because He has pledged His exclusive love and devotion to us. You think of the illustration of marriage. When you hear those vows taken, when you see the rings that are exchanged, and the minister asks the couple to repeat after him, I give you as a symbol and pledge of constant faith and abiding love this ring. And then will you have this ring as a pledge of your covenant love and you will perform these vows? The man and woman says, I do, to only one another. It's an exclusive relationship and that's the kind of exclusive devoted love that God has for us in His jealousy. God's covenantly, covenantally bound to us. He's taken a promise. He's taken an oath, and He is not going to change His mind. And by the way, it's not based on whether we can be faithful to Him. He remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. That's His grace to us. Mixed in with this, avenging, wrathful vengeance. This avenging and vengeance is about God's holiness, it's about His justice, His righteousness. He has a perfect standard, His law that He has given. 
And when we fall short of that law, when we violate that law, it's, it's an attack on God Himself. It's rebellion against a God who loves us. Justice is what drives God's vengeance. It's not petty revenge that we would have. In fact, God tells us not to take vengeance. Vengeance is His. He will repay. The violation of His perfect and holy standard has to be punished. Deuteronomy 32, in the Song of Moses, Moses says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and I swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and if my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. There was so much that was done to the people of Israel because they were exclusively de- devoted to their God. And in the name of their other gods, these nations from around would persecute and destroy and kill. And God says, I will take care of justice. I will make sure that my holiness is vindicated. Now, sometimes people look at this description of God and they say, all right, here's the answer. That's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament, that's, that's a God of love and grace. We see fullness in Jesus who was full of grace and truth. Surely, He was meek and lowly. But yes, This God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. In Revelation 19, we see Jesus as the rider on the white horse. And when John saw that rider on the white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes flame like fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that's written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped with blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name that's written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19 is full of God's wrath and vengeance poured out. There's four times in the entire New Testament that the term hallelujah is used. Praise the Lord. It's all four in Revelation 19. It's once used of hallelujah for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. The three other times in Revelation 19, it's hallelujah. God's bringing judgment. God's vindicating Himself. Justice is finally served. The Bible, Old Testament and New, tells us that God is consumed with His glory and righteousness being done. This flow of lava, so to speak, this this display of God's power continues in verse 3 with a little break. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. You know, he's, he's not just whipping back and, and 
knocking people down. He's not capricious in his anger. He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering, and he's great in his power. You see, it's one thing for somebody to be a hothead and get angry, but it's another thing for them to back up those words and those sentiments. And God says, I have the power to follow through and exact my vengeance. In verses 3 through 5, the Lord by no means will clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and it's dry. He dries up rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of leaven and withers. These great seas, this great forest are nothing before the wrath of God. It dries up and withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell it, who can stand? Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger when His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces before Him? I think our view of God has gotten so low, so gentle that we miss vast portions of Scripture that describe the power of God on display. He's great in power. You know, in C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, he describes um, the figure of Aslan, the one who rules and reigns over all, is a picture of God as, um, as a mighty lion. And when in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene where Susan and Lucy are getting re- ready to meet Aslan, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are getting them ready for that encounter. And Mr. Beaver warned them, he'll be coming and going, he said, one day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down, and of course, he has, no, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only you must not press him. He's wild, you know. He's not a tame lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mrs. Beaver, and make no mistake, if there's anyone who, could, who can appear before Aslan without his knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I fear we want a safe God. We want a God that we can put in a box and we can call out to and get to do what we want Him to do. We want a tame lion. Later in the silver chair, Jill is introduced to this lion at a pool, and she's thirsty. The lion says, are you thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion only answered by his look in a very low growl as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk. She realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly crazy. Will you promise not to, not to do anything if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing she had taken a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women, men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come to drink, said Jill. 
then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. You see, it's the God of the Bible as He describes Himself or nothing. There isn't another way. There isn't another reality. There isn't another God that can save us, only this God. This God who is great, but He is good. The Lord is a refuge and a peace. You see, in the midst of this judgment and wrath throughout the chapter, there's like three different islands that we get to rest on. In verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. In verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And then verse 15, behold upon the mountain the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. You see, the refuge and peace only makes sense when we understand where that danger comes from. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is in a similar situation as Nahum and the rest of the Israelites. They look around and they see the wicked are prospering. Why do the wicked prosper, Lord, is Psalm 73's cry. I think it can be our cry today when we see wickedness in the world and atrocities committed. And if we're not angry about it, there's something wrong with us. And God is angry at that wickedness as well. And the answer to that wickedness is that God will judge. That sin must be judged. In order for there to be peace, in order for there to be refuge, the wicked must be judged. At the end of Psalm 73, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You see, refuge and peace are only genuine good news to when we, when we root them in the anger of God against sin. David Paulson writes a book called Good and Angry, and in that he says that it makes it hard for us to understand God's anger and love that they're entirely consistent with each other. They're different expressions of His goodness and His glory. As B.B. Warfield put it, Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs He meant in His journey through the human life as truly as He melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. It was out of these two emotions that His actual mercy preceded, God's mercy and grace. To put that in the context of Jonah and Nahum, God's grace and compassion, it's extended towards repentant sinners who call out to Him. Nineveh, who deserved to be destroyed, they, see, they experience God's grace. And this is also entirely consistent with His anger and wrath being poured out on unrepentant Nineveh in the time of Nahum. We're called upon to understand God's anger and wrath, and He calls us to be careful of anger and wrath that would be for our own selfish ends. In James 1, 19 to 20, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. 
the narrative of the Bible is about two kinds of anger. There is the anger of God who's angry because He wants His way, His holy, His just, His perfect, and His loving way. And the way that is our anger, we're angry because we want our way, our unholy, our selfish, our unrighteous, and our imperfect way. The cross is going to be the only solution for these two angers. The anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. The anger of man deserves God's wrath and judgment against it. And at the cross, that's where God's wrath and judgment was poured out for sin. For my sin was laid on Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us, took upon himself the wrath and curse that we deserve so that we could be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Without God's wrath poured out on Christ, we would have no peace. We would have no refuge. God has worked a beautiful story of two angers coming to collision at the cross to redeem a people, to rescue us from ourselves. I hope that you're changed today in light of Nahum's vivid display of God's anger in his character. If you're scared today of God's anger and judgment, I pray that you'd run to the cross for refuge and peace. That's the only place you'll find it. If you're scared today for the lost souls of those you know and the certain judgment that they face, I pray that you'd find the courage to share with them the good news of the cross. If the wicked have prospered around you, and you've suffered at the hands of evil people, I pray that you'd take comfort that God will avenge and vengeance is His. If your worship has been lackluster or shallow, I pray that you would offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because you know that our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you shape and change us based on what we know about you Start by changing our false understandings of who you are into what is true. And Lord, may we be transformed by that truth. Lord, I pray that we would reflect not our own sinful anger that so often rears its ugly head, but that we would be consumed by your righteous anger because we love your holiness and truth. I pray, Lord, that you would transform our view of the lost and dying world that you would transform our worship, that it would be glorifying to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This morning our hymn of response is hymn 149. We'll stand and sing verses 1 and 2 of Teach Me, O Lord, Your Way of Truth as the elders prepare the table.